0: Today's episode is brought to you by me, still mostly just brought to you by me. However, my friends over at defiantbean.com are trying to help out too, but they can't do it alone. Defiant Bean Roasters take responsibly sourced quality coffee beans, lovingly and caringly roast them, sometimes while listening to the EnormaCast, apparently. Then they put them in a bag, still warm, in a box and send them to you. So fresh, the beans think they're on a little vacation. Right up until they hear the grinder fire up. But anyway, DefiantBean.com is offering Enorma cast listeners a deal. Ten percent off any order, and we, the royal we over here at the Enormalcast, get ten percent as well. That's DefiantBean.com. Enter Enormo in the coupon code at checkout and get ten percent off great coffee. Or head over to Enormalcast.com, click on the Defiant Bean banner for details. Be Defiant. Demand fresh roasted coffee. All right, on to the show. We gotta get Listen, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's a, a big nice. place. You sold oh, so it out. I'll you We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. Make I don't think so. But we shall continue with style.
1: Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later. Anytime. Good time.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 18 of The Normal Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalus. It is August 31st, about 2.30 p.m. Central Time. And I am coming to you from the great state of Wisconsin. Am I climbing at Devil's Lake? No, I'm not, actually. I'm here on a family vacation. This is the old country for me. This is where I was born and raised for a good amount of time. With all due respect to Devil's Lake, the last great bastion against Bolting in the United States, I just don't have time to get down there on this trip. Perhaps another time. On today's show, I sit down with Randy Levitt, who, in my uh, not-so-humble opinion, never-humble opinion, is one of the best, if not the best, rock climbers that the U.S. has ever produced. Um, I've been really scratching my head trying to think of another climber in the history of the world, in fact, that can claim to have established Big Wall A5, 514 Sport, 514 gear routes, plus a few old-school, really hard and scary traditional roots, throw in some of the first really difficult and technical off with first ascents, and you've got a guy with a pretty deep resume that I don't think many people can match. I think it bears repeating that Randy was not satisfied just repeating hard roots, but was driven to find and establish uh, scores of roots at the top of the limits of what was considered possible at the time. And I kind of feel that Randy doesn't get his due in history. Although this clearly doesn't really bother him. And as I talked to him, I started to understand maybe why he doesn't seem to have the mythology surrounding him that the likes of Bridwell and John Long and other California figures receive. It seems that Randy went about his business uh, primarily without sponsorship. He didn't write a lot of articles. He really didn't do a lot of self-promotion. And he's certainly cut from a different cloth than what we might expect from most of our visionary climbers. If you have a sense of the history of climbing, then you certainly know how badass this guy is, but for some reason, it seems like maybe he just went at it in a way that made us feel like he was just another one of us out there, just maybe a little bit stronger, or a lot stronger. Anyway, I just feel like he and his group of cohorts influenced the way my generation climbed, and the way all subsequent generation of free climbers climbed, perhaps as much as anybody that's come along, and I have an immense amount of respect for the guy. Randy Levitt seems like the kind of guy that a long time ago decided not to waste a minute of his life, so I was pretty honored when he decided to sit down with me, with us, and talk about his life, so thanks for listening to The Unormal Cast, and here is my conversation with American rock climbing legend, at least in my mind, Randy Levitt. When you when you uh, are here at the trade show, mm-hmm. working for Maxim, what's your capacity
1: in oh, terms of? I I started out as a sponsored athlete, right? You know, and then over the years, as I get older and other people are the more hot athletes, I'm just kind of the guy who holds the whole thing together, uh-huh. sort of the keeper of the flame. You know, oh, right? On. The consistent face that they see year in and year out, and I manage the climbing team and oh, you do give them advice and stuff like that. Oh, cool. Yeah,
0: right on. Yeah, I mean, not like to. You're like what are you even doing here? Yeah. But uh, I was just curious because I I don't I couldn't imagine you being in any sort of like sales capacity over there or anything. No, or, I I don't like yeah. sales. Yeah, <laughs> I want to welcome Randy Levitt to uh, my Roadway Inn hotel room here in Salt Lake City. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Oh, pretty well. How are you doing? Chris? Good, good. We're both um, at the outdoor retailer trade show, which is just a gathering of of all outdoor companies, but also the climbing companies. And um, Randy was here, and I asked him to come in and sit down with me because. I've known Randy for, um, I think, about 15 years now or maybe even longer, I think, although not consistently. Um, we met when I was working in a climbing gym in Southern California in Orange County when uh, you were living in San Diego, which you still live in San Diego. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Yeah. And you used to come up and climb there. And it was right in like this big wall era of mine. And you had just, I guess, about a decade before... Uh, kind of come out of your big wall era or maybe a little bit closer to that. But So when I first met you, I was extraordinarily intimidated. And um, I, you probably didn't know that. I kept myself cl- together pretty well. But
1: I, I think Chris said something about our, our other – our mutual friend Chris said something about how he, you were happy that I actually gave you information. Yeah. Like you thought I was going to stonewall you or something. <laughs> well,
0: you know how Yosemite could be in those days. Oh, and yeah. The guys that climb there. And so – when you actually – when because I, I approached Randy about um, repeating a route that he and uh, I believe Rob Slater had put up, Scorched Earth. Uh-huh. Is that correct? Yeah. And uh, it had sort of laid there dormant and unrepeated for um, a good decade, actually. And so I thought, well, you know, he's going to look at me and just be like, forget about it. You're, you, you couldn't possibly climb my route. But instead, you were awesome and gave us a topo. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I still I still felt kind of kind of like freaked out about it. But then we went and climbed it. And uh, another part of the story is that when we came back, even after all that, you asked me, so what would you think of the A5 pitch? You know, and I started to be like, well, you know, there were those rivets and, you know, probably annoyingly immodest about it. And and you were like, well, wait a minute, what rivets? And then I got my heart rate went up like, oh, he's going to accuse me of drilling on his (laughs) roof. <laughs> and I said, there was, you know, on the topo, there's there a couple of rivets you guys had. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, those. And I was just like, okay, cool. Because I, I was a little gunshy, you, know? you know, somebody can be a rough place to walk into and start oh, doing totally. hard routes. So. Yeah. Which was a little bit of you guys' legacy, because uh, I think in, in some of those routes, you were sort of thumbing your nose a little bit at, at some of the locals, weren't you, when you guys were putting up some of those big walls? I wouldn't say thumbing our noses, but we were all
1: business, so we would show up, we'd get the route done, and we'd go home and, you know, go back to our jobs school or whatever. Right. And uh, Yosemite, you kind of, the way it was there is you really wanted to hang out for a while and sort of socialize and acclimatize and sort of be accepted by the group. And Mm -hmm. people that did it a different way were treated differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we were treated really well in Yosemite. You know, I didn't have any problems. I have a lot of respect for the locals, but... You know, there's well-documented stories about people who did it a different way than the locals do it, and they weren't treated well. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, it's there's a lot of eagles involved in all the climbing areas, and mm-hmm. it's just how you manage that. Uh, we, we were doing hard routes, and everyone knew it. You know, I was climbing with the locals like Dale Bard and uh, Bill Price, and so I spent my time with the, right. the local guys. Right, right. But I was on another track. I was a guy from SoCal, and these guys were more like Central, Northern Cal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was the guy that would just be all revved up, show up and, and climb and leave. Right. But, you know, I had a lot of things, other interests and in a lot of other climbing I was doing.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny, funny because that, that, you know, on a more minor scale that, that was the way I was too. Cause not only was I a Southern California climber, but I was from really from Colorado. Wow, so that's, that's worse. Yeah. <laughs> and so I would, and then the same thing, I, I think I talked about it on the Cedar my Suda Wright uh, interview that, yeah, we'd walk, I'd go there and do my route and go home. Mm-hmm. And and that was like a little bit different. You know, one of the things I remember from that though too, is there's a famous picture of you guys um, shaving up there. I think it was on, maybe on Lost in America. Right. Yeah. Greg Child and I did Lost in America. Right. And uh, and you're up there, you got your mirrors out and you brought, and you brought your shaving equipment and made sure to document it. Uh-huh. That you oh, of guys course. Were, <laughs> you guys were staying clean cut up there. So I, I appreciated that because that was that era of wall climbing of like, we're going to, we're going to do this civilized, but it's going to be really, really hard. So,
1: Well, uh, one of my regular partners back then was Rob Slater, and we used to have a joke that was, if it was worth climbing, it was worth getting a picture of it. Oh, right, huh? And, and at the time, it seems like, why are you going through all this effort to get these photographs? But when you look back and you're older, you never have that chance again. Mm-hmm. And it's just really nice that we had all that stuff. And, mm-hmm. and some of it was for fun, some of it was serious, but we we're always trying to have the camera out there. Right. Right.
0: Well, I think those shots were interesting to me because there's part of you that obviously like wanted to have a really good time and have a lot of fun. But then clearly there's this part of you that takes climbing very, very seriously. And uh, it was, you know, like I said, when I walked into, wow, there's Randy Levitt, there was that part of me that was like, this guy's really serious about climbing and I better not overstep my bounds with him or whatever else. (laughs) But then, as I got to know you, I'm like, okay, here's this guy that's also like can go up there and have a crazy good time and do crazy stuff like hook with a tent pole and and what whatever else you guys were up to up there. So it, it's interesting to have met you in this and had these kind of conflicting ideas in my head. But do you have any thing to say about that part of your personality?
1: Well, yeah, I, I, one thing that's always stood out in my mind is that people think that good climbers somehow equate to being a good person. So. You know, if you meet a good climber, there's something more value about, about you or that person that's a good climber than a regular person. But right. that's the farthest thing from the truth because there, there's no correlation whatsoever. Just because you happen to be good at climbing doesn't give you more value. So I try to uh, – I have that perspective when I talk to other people, but other people don't have that perspective when they maybe talk to me or another climber that was well-known in our generation. Mm-hmm. And – uh uh, you know, so I enjoy giving, uh, I enjoy helping people, but I also took climbing seriously. I mean, there's moments in my life where I was so dead serious about it. In fact, uh, I remember Kim Kerrigan back in the Arapiles day named a route Serious Young Lizards. <laughs> Do you, you know that route? I think it was another name maybe for Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And and I, that always stuck in my mind. I'm like, yeah, we're real serious young lizards.
0: Well, I, cle- clearly, your career, to speak to a level of seriousness, I mean, you wouldn't have gotten what you'd done done without it but so let's back up um i actually talked to you just a few minutes ago before the interview about how i don't really have any clear sense of i don't know where you grew up um i don't know how you got into climbing and you know could you tell us about that a little bit
1: it was i was probably 13 years old or 12 years old i went to colorado on a family camping vacation Mm -hmm. where you go to this sort of dude ranch for families and my parents and i would do river rafting horseback riding rock climbing and there was a guy there who was a climber, and he had a film about climbing. And I just really took to it. I really enjoyed it. And that stuck in my mind, but that wasn't the beginning of my climbing experience, really. But that was the first time I went climbing. Mm-hmm. So maybe three years later or a couple of years later when I was maybe 15 years old, my sister's boyfriend at the time decided to get into rock climbing. And he bought a book about how to climb by Royal Robbins, Basic Rock craft. He asked me if I wanted to go climbing, and I thought, "Yeah, this is something that sounds really cool." So we would go out and tie a knot and look at Royal Robbins' book, and go, "Oh yeah, that's a figure eight. That's correct, and this is a belay system." And we just basically self taught ourselves. Uh huh. Um, you were was, living where? I was living in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. In so were
0: Dor- were you out at Stony Point or? Yeah, this was right. at Stony Point. Okay.
1: Yosemite, Stony Point, you know, Idlewild, that sort of thing. So my history of climbing was uh, a little bit after, I guess, the old Stone Masters. So I was maybe a couple of years behind those guys uh-huh. and climbed with a bunch of those guys. Sure. I was a little younger than them and I hooked up with Dave Carpenter. I remember was one of those guys and he was older and I would just look up these guys, even though they were maybe three years older than me. At, at that time, that seems like a lot older. And I would just do everything I could to go climbing with them and and uh I I improved really fast. I think climbing was something that was natural for me. Mm -hmm. But I always looked at big wall climbing as the thing because I remember when I was, my first experience at looking at climbing was in Yosemite. I was looking up at El Capitan. I was with my family, and there were these clouds in the valley, and I could see the clouds part, and then there was someone up on probably the nose. Uh And you would see that, and then they'd disappear, and the clouds would cover again. And to me, that was what I wanted to do. So from the first day I started climbing, big walls were on my mind. Uh I did my first big wall. Before I was 16, I did the Leaning Tower. Uh And from there, it was just... And I did the Pacific Ocean Wall, I believe, when I was 17. Um, I soloed Electric Ladyland when I was 17. I did Zenyatta Mandata, probably around that age. Not Zenyatta, but uh, the Zodiac. The Zodiac. Early Ascent of the Zodiac. Right. I did uh, the Pacific Ocean Wall with Dale Bard, and he was a true... Him and a guy named Max Jones were like true masters of their era. And I would climb with these guys. And what I really admired from those guys was how well-rounded they were. I mean, one day Dale would be nailing A5. The next day he's climbing hard free climbs. Mm-hmm. And same with Max. So I, what I, I considered myself um, a really natural, talented, big wall climber, but not a very good free climber. Okay. So in the back of my mind, uh, later on in my career, I... <laughs> I went back to free climbing. I thought, I've got to try to figure out how to do this well. Right.
0: That's really interesting, actually. I think in a modern sense, you're probably more known for that now.
1: Yeah, which is ironic because I I think the climbing that I'm best at is big wall climbing. Okay. But um, my early experiences, I started climbing with Tony Mm O'Neill. And he was way into wall climbing, but he was also into free climbing. And quickly, he lost interest in wall climbing, but started free climbing and training and so I could look at him as a model of, wow, this is how this is how you do it. You know, Tony was serious; he was he would think about training. And but for me, it was the free climbing was just a way to fill the voids between wall seasons.
0: Okay, huh? That's pretty wild. I had no idea that you had had that early career at such a young age, climbing that many walls in your teens. Mm-hmm. I mean, that must have been pretty exceptional at the time.
1: I, I did a lot of you know a lot of the hard routes pretty quickly, uh-huh. and so. It's weird to to be that young because when you're that young, you look at what the hardest things are and you have some expectation that maybe you could do that. And as soon as you can do one of them, then you know you can do all of them. Uh-huh. And I think that's why kids these days are so good at, at say, climbing 514 is they grow up thinking, well, what's hard? Well, 515 is hard. Well, 513 shouldn't be that big of a deal. Right. And when they're 12 years old, they're climbing 513.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm still stuck in an age when 5'13 was really hard, so it remains really hard. It's, <laughs> it's kind of a drag. It's still hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, um, you know, I, I kind of, I actually was talking to uh, Dougal McDonald over at Climbing Magazine yesterday and mentioned that I was going to interview you, and, and I had this sort of theory or, or feeling, and, you know, I'm going to posit a whole bunch of different theories about your career, and you can either, you know, just nod your head and... Be amazed at my sage knowledge, or you can just you know correct my 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 complete off base theories. But you know, there's like the Golden Age, and there's like the Bridwell Age, and then even like the Stone Masters sort of packed in there. But then it seems like the era with you and you and and even Max Jones and and uh, Houdon. What was his Mark Hudon? And Mark Hudon. It's kind of like that. That's never been seen as like this coalesced moment. It's like. After the Stone Masters, it's like nothing ever happened again, you know, in yeah, the mythology. Right. God God rested for right. a number of decades. Right. <laughs> and yet... <laughs> Before
1: he created Chris Sharma.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and yet when you look at the influence on modern climbing, it's like that's when it all happened. Because that's why I think you guys, in a lot of ways, solidified the same ethics we're using today, where you kind of went through, I mean, there was the yo-yoing and there was all these different permutations of how you're going to place bolts or if you're not, or if you are. And it seems like that was all hashed out in the eighties and maybe came into this era where we've, you know, we've pretty much settled on two or three different paths of the way people climb. Mm -hmm. And, but it must've been a, I mean, a wild time for you guys to sort of be mixing it up with all those different ethical streams that were coming from the old days or coming in from Europe or anything like that. Can you, can you make any comments on sort of how you sort of found a direction uh, in terms of your free climbing after that?
1: I mean, everything from how you place bolts to if you even place bolts. Mm -hmm. So when I started climbing, the whole idea on these big walls was you place minimum bolts. You know, Mm -hmm. you were counting holes, how many holes you drilled. And the the fewer, the better the style and the better the line, right? The more natural the line. So it started with that. And so I was reticent to place bolts. But once we started placing them, I did some ground up stuff. And then we also did uh, stuff either on top rope or on rappel uh, fairly early on when Tony and you know, and I were doing some new routes. And to me, it seemed like, well, once you place that hole, the responsibility seemed better to get that hole and that bolt in the right place and make it good. So I quickly made the jump from should we even place bolts to, well, if we do, we should place them on rappel or whatever is the most uh, logical means to do it right sometimes and, it's on lead
0: and younger climbers you know would even are wondering why this that would even be an issue but i mean there was a point even when you guys were were getting into this where hang dogging which sim- simply means i i think i have to explain that nowadays but simply means resting on the rope on a free climbing attempt and then continuing afterwards from the same spot like that was something that was even frowned upon mm-hmm. or pre climbing it on top rope before you let it was frowned upon or as you just said then we get into placing bolts and rappel that that was like fighting territory at, at a certain point point. and it does seem like looking at your career you were a lot of times right at the forefront of saying no 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 I'm, this is the way I'm going to do it and you know ethics be damned or you people can can you know do whatever you want to do but this is what I'm doing Climbing
1: ethics are probably my least favorite subject, just because right. it's sort of like politics and religion. Uh-huh. If we don't agree, it's not a lot of fun to talk about. Right. <laughs> but well, um, um, and I'm not saying I don't want to talk about it. It's just that there's so many there's so many gray areas. It's not black and white. People mm-hmm. like to put things in terms of black and white. Should bolting be allowed on rappel? Um, you know. But you you go to something even as early as hangdogging, and what we used to do is we used to climb up, and one guy would place his gear up a crack. And then he'd fall, and then he'd lower, mm-hmm. and then the next guy would get a top rope to the high point right. and place a few more, and he'd fall and lower, Right. and then the, the other guy would get back on, and you're basically setting up a top rope higher and higher. Sure. The so yo-yo. how, how That's is what that, that was called the yo-yo? Yeah. So how is that better style than a true red point, which is a true red point in trad climbing, uh, is is where you would just start at the bottom and you place all of your gear on one attempt, mm-hmm. and you'd get to the top right you know and that's to me that's the best style so however you can rehearse or get to that point makes more sense to me you know climbing is a free thing everyone can do what right. they want but it, the problem is is when people say you cannot do it this way and if you do we'll punish you by removing your roots or whatever mm-hmm. And it, that that gets a little bit old
0: and that's happened to you yeah for sure uh all right i'm gonna kind of jump back so you ended up going to see you in right. Boulder uh-huh. to go to college, and is that was that tied to your your days at the Dude Ranch? Thinking like I got to get back to Colorado, or w- what was the motivation to go from California to go to school in Colorado? Um,
1: what was that book remember? called? Cl- that book, Climb. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the one that inspired me to go to Colorado. Awesome. Okay, it was that photo book, and you know it well. See, it, I knew I a- loved you. <laughs> Randy Levitt. <love> <laughs> so I, I I realized that. Being a climbing bum was great, but I had more aspirations. I had actually some business aspirations when I was young. And to do that, I needed to go to college. But I didn't want to just go to college. I wanted to go to college and kind of ease into college, but sort of major in rock climbing Mm -hmm. to start out with. I went to Colorado for two years and quickly met some of my good friends there, like Rob Slater. Mm -hmm. And we sort of, it was kind of like you said earlier, I would come into the valley and do these climbs and leave. Well, I came to Colorado and met Rob, and he was just so like-minded. We were so much alike that we were like, okay, what do we want to do here? We're not going to hang here forever. So we made a list. We wrote down a list of all the climbs we wanted to do in El Dorado and Boulder Canyon. Mm -hmm. And we did all those climbs, and after two years of being at the university, I'd done all those climbs plus a number of first ascents, and it just felt like time to move on. I, I wanted a better university for my major, which was economics. Uh-huh. Uh huh but the whole reason for Colorado was the book climb. climb! <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's and- uh, you're allowing me to <laughs> yell it into the mic. You're not going to you're not going to debase yourself like that. <laughs> but uh yes, and it's interesting you mentioned Rob. I I had a uh, again sort of a peripheral relationship with Rob um and th- the fact that you guys were like-minded goes beyond climbing because obviously he went on to to you know work in famous for going to Chicago and working in the commodities exchange, I believe it was yeah, the Chicago board of trade or the board of trade. And yeah. so, yeah, you know, so he had this similar thing of wanting to be something besides a climbing bum, mm-hmm. um, but also to be a climber. So I'm, I'm sure you guys ha- had the meeting of the minds, but yeah, you guys got some stuff done. And, and now I, I know this is really well tread territory of the um, invention of levitating, but did that current occur at CU as well?
1: No, that occurred before that time. Oh, okay. it, was,
0: it was in my 70 days,
1: early days, around uh-huh. those big wall times where Tony and I had actually been working on that technique at a parking garage in, in Los Angeles. Okay.
0: All right. That's where oh. I got my story mixed up. I thought it was a CU parking garage. Right. nevertheless.
1: It was in Los Angeles. Okay. Tony and I would go in there at night, and we found this off-width crack that was a roof crack that was 50 or 45 feet long, about 8 feet off the ground. And so we we would spot each other. This is we didn't even have pads or anything like that, and we developed this technique which worked quite well. So when I was in Yosemite uh, with John Yablonski and some other Yosemite locals, we were top roping badass Mama in between big wall climbs. Uh huh. And I watched them for a while, and they were struggling on this thing, and I thought, you know, this technique that we've been doing, I think it would work here. And I, and I just hiked up the climb. Right. And then you always said, oh, well, you can't lead like that, so it's not legitimate. So I, I uh, came back a little while later
0: and let it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, can That's you, how it was born. Can you, uh, can you sort of explain
1: it in a nutshell? Well, I could explain it if you look on Vimeo and you follow my name. You'll see my videos. And right. look for I just made a how-to levitation video four days ago. Awesome. And I posted it, and it actually breaks down like how to do the hand stacks, little tips about what to do with your feet and your knees. Uh-huh. And it's pretty good. So... I, I suggest people go there.
0: Well, I'll, I'll for sure link it on, the, on my website too. Okay, good. And, and in fact, I'm I'm going to need to watch it as well. So, because I've never quite, I've, I've like yelled down to my partner. I think I just, uh, I think I just levitated. But I've never quite been sure if I was doing it or not. So, it's
1: basically, um, you know, off with climbing involves climbing a wide crack. So, uh, what people would normally do would be to put their arm in and try to chicken wing or you know press their arm different ways in the crack to hold on. And then move their lower body up, and then move their upper body up. But we figured out that in, you can fill that crack with a combination of two hand jams on top of each other, or a hand and a fist, or two fist jams. And it's really just that alternating technique of stacking your hand jams or your fist and your hand jams together, and then putting your knee in and hanging from that your knee or your foot or whatever fits in. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And we were we found we figured out that technique before anyone else did. And you know, my name was Levitt, and we came up with levitation. Right. And so yeah. you can call it whatever you want, hand-stacking. Uh-huh.
0: So. so did you – Um. I. there's a couple things throughout this interview I'm going to ask you about sort of rumors that I've heard or made up about your life. But uh, d- did you guys do that animal magnetism route up up uh, the St. Ver- – or no, up towards uh, – Um. Split Rocks? Yeah, Split yeah. Rocks. Uh-huh. Okay, is that what it's called? Yeah, Animal uh, Magnetism. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that is true, uh-huh. and, uh huh. And
1: it's on private land though. Yeah, it's so on people private land. You can't go there.
0: Yeah, you'd see it easily when you're driving by. Mm-hmm. So, and that was one of your your routes that you put put up when you were at CU. Right. Okay. So well, that's cool. I was just curious about that. It's really brutal. Yeah.
1: And uh, I think it was 12D. I uh-huh. forgot what I rated it. Right. But it was hard. I wonder if it's ever been done again. Skip Garen did it. Okay. Um, he was an incredibly talented climber back then. Maybe someone else has done it, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't know. But I, I'm almost sure Skip did it.
0: Yeah. You definitely will have to trespass and get caught, I think, unless they're not home because mm-hmm. uh, it's fairly visible. Well, that was a long time yeah. ago. There were no fences Right, or signs. no problem. Yeah. yeah, no problem. So, you know, one other thing I wanted to ask you, too, and I read this in one of your – something about you, that there was a point at which you wanted to be a mountaineer, <laughs> and you actually went on a Himalayan expedition?
1: Uh, when I was a young climber in the Yosemite days, the only thing that seemed – Cooler to me than big walls was big mountains. So I started reading all the Pete Boardman, Joe Tasker books. Mm-hmm. And those guys were my heroes. I mean, I would think, like, God, that's what I want to do when I'm, when I'm able. I want to climb like those guys. So in 1986, I was invited by Greg Child and Tim McCartney Snape to go on this Gashabrum 4 expedition, which the mountain had been climbed only one time in 1958. Uh-huh. And uh, Wojtek Kurtka and Robert Schauer had climbed it, I think, in... Some year before our 1986 expedition, but they actually didn't make the summit. So technically, it had only been climbed once, even though their ascent was remarkable. And then I was invited on that expedition because we were also going to climb Nameless Tower, which is a big wall climb at high altitude. Uh So I was recruited for my expertise at that. Okay. And this was a perfect opportunity for me to sort out in my own mind if I wanted to be a mountaineer because I was going to be on one of the most prominent mountains in the Himalayas. And with some a great climbing team. And I had a great time there. But during that trip, a lot of international superstar climbers died on K2 and elsewhere. And four months of being in that trip or being on that trip and coming back and realizing that the chances of dying doing this are pretty high. Right. And it's a huge time commitment. And at that, after that time, uh, the idea of rock climbing, just being a rock climber, seemed more like what I wanted to do. Uh-huh.
0: So. Did you guys uh, get anywhere near Nameless Tower? Yeah, the, we, uh,
1: the uh, our team was successful climbing oh, okay. Gashabram 4. Uh-huh. And that was the first climb that we did. I wasn't on the summit team, but Greg, Tom Hargis, and Tim McCartney Snape were summited on that trip. And then we went to uh, Nameless Tower, but at that point there were only three of our eight or nine climbers left. It was uh, Greg and me and Tom. Uh-huh. And those two guys were knackered from summiting on G4, and, but I was raring to go. So sure. I was like motivated, like the Energizer bunny, I want to get on top of this thing. We were up there, and the weather was too warm, really, for, for the ice to melt at night. And the ice was just melting all day long, slowly.
0: Oh, you mean the ice to freeze at night?
1: Yeah, to the ice yeah. to freeze at night, I'm sorry. So, I don't know, halfway up the Nameless Tower, I was aid climbing up this A3+, plus, hooking and knife blade pitch kind of an up-and-left traverse, and there was a dihedral above me with a big hanging refrigerator-sized ice block in there. And I looked down, and right between us, this drops off and falls right between me and, and Greg and Tom, who were on the belay 150 feet below. Uh huh. And they were sort of tending towards wanting to get off the climb before that. And I looked down at them, and I said, It's unanimous. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so we bailed.
0: Right on. (laughs) Uh,
1: You know, it's just not worth dying, climbing. I mean, climbing is a great thing, but it's only one of many things you can do on this planet. I I didn't want to die in the Himalayas.
0: Yeah, and when I think I've often explained to sort of my layman non-climbing relatives and whatnot that when you have this image of how dangerous climbing is, sort of the greater world, you know, if you could somehow statistically lump all of climbing, whether it's Himalayas, rock climbing, everything together... Yeah, it seems really dangerous. You get rid of the Himalayan part of things. And pure rock climbing, you know, it has its dangers. And definitely people have died and die all the time and make mistakes. But it just takes so many of the objective things out of it when you get away from that sort of climbing. Um, right. I, I consider it fairly safe. And again, I, you know, as another parallel thing, I had the same motions, although I didn't get all the way to the Himalayas. But I've, I fancied myself a mountaineer in the beginning. And it, New Zealand was enough to take me... Take me out of the equation, actually. <laughs> so, which has its, you know, plenty of dangers in its own right. So, I came home from that going, I think I'm going to be a rock climber too. So,
1: rock climbing sounds kind of nice yeah, and comfortable.
0: And it wasn't long before I gave up ice climbing too. So, that was fine. But we're kind of jumping around. But when you guys were wall climbing and you, you actually explained it pretty well that you thought free climbing was like this diversion that you did between wall climbing. And then you pretty much switched over. Now, was there any point? You know, you guys were uh, 10 years ahead of the curve in terms of of free climbing on El Cap. But was that ever in your head? I mean, had you ever connected the two before Todd and Paul went up there and then subsequently Lynn? And, you know, where was the idea of free climbing on El Cap in your mind?
1: Free climbing on El Cap was when you couldn't aid climb. right? Okay, so if you had an off-width you didn't have gear big enough for, or you had a face that you didn't think you could hook up. Right. So that was what free climbing was. Right. And we didn't care you know, if we were French-free or what we were doing up there. Okay. I mean, it, it, if we rated a pitch entirely free, it was entirely free. Right. But it wasn't a priority to free climb. That whole
0: thing was, was, uh, came later on. Uh-huh. I've always wondered, I think it was just a timing thing, but in my mind, I was like, Levitt should have been in here doing this right with these guys. But it seems like by that time you were sport climbing. Right. And and had kind of gotten away from the valley almost entirely, it sounds like.
1: You can't be everywhere at once, right. that's for sure. And, and <laughs> uh, I mean, that takes a huge commitment. Look what Todd and Paul went through to free climb the South, eh? Right. So... I you know in retrospect it would have been nice to be there mm-hmm. there you know there's if I could have picked and choose every little project I know of in in hindsight mm-hmm. I, I'm sure I would have been on in on that action mm-hmm. but um, I'm I'm real happy with the things I was doing at the time
0: so <laughs> I'm not accusing you of sloth don't get me wrong <laughs> <laughs> I was getting nervous <laughs> why weren't you there um, so let's move on to that so you're 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 going through this year with Uniro. And, and moving into free climbing where do you make the switch and it wasn't really a switch I don't think it was complete but there's definitely this this period then where you're you know known for your sport climbing and in my opinion you may not have been the first 514 climber in the United States but you you solidified the grade in terms of especially I think with your your first ascent um, so can you sort of speak to maybe a transition in your and your motivations towards sport climbing, that came a little bit later?
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, okay, and the expedition to Pakistan was 1986. Uh-huh. So in 1985, for Greg and I to you know get together as a team and climb, we did the first ascent of Lost in America. Okay. Uh, and that was on El Capitan. In 1986, I went on that expedition. In 1987, I got together with Rob Slater, and we climbed the first ascent of Scorched Earth on El Cap. And that was something that Rob and I had always wanted to do. You know, we even had the name picked out beforehand and all that. And when Rob and I were up there, we, we had a lot of time to talk because he was getting involved in the Chicago Board of Trade. And he was basically – he was came straight from Chicago just to do that climb. Uh huh. We did the climb when the, the wall opened up around August 1st, um, you know, for bird closures seasonally. Um, then Rob and I went up that wall and – we both for both of us it was a turning point and for Rob it was almost in some ways it was almost his last climb. I mean he really didn't have any designs on climbing much after that. And for me, I sort of had seen every flake and edge and crack system on El cap and I really wasn't interested in spending many many more days up there. So I thought this is a perfect time for me to sort of switch gears uh-huh. And so one of our last pitches on Shirts is called Farewell Yosemite.
0: Okay. And that was the reason
1: for that, yeah. Right. Um, Rob went back to work in the Chicago Board of Trade, and I more enthusiastically took up my business ventures and sport climbing. And sport climbing worked out with – I couldn't do a business venture and be in Pakistan for four or five, six months a year. So this was perfect for me, just the sport climbing lifestyle. It's something I'd never gotten good at as far as I was concerned. And just by hard work and training and – and then I started getting a developing a love for it and seeing the new routes that we could do. Shortly after that, we started discovering limestone in the Virgin River Gorge. Uh-huh. And so that led to seeing 514s that we could actually start working on. Okay. And we didn't know there were 514s, but we knew that grade was there somewhere. And we would find these routes that were so hard. And that that became how I started climbing 514 was by doing new routes, not repeating anyone else's. Right. There weren't really any other 514s. Well, that's you know, what that I think yeah. was
0: my point. Yeah. You had to create them. Yeah. And, you know, there, I think at that point, a smattering, you know, the, the Smith Rock had its couple. and and uh, But, yeah, like I said, it, it feels like you, to me, ushered the grade in at a solid level and said, okay, here's a whole bunch of them.
1: Well, we, I was definitely among those group of guys uh, right. like Boone Speed and Jeff sure. Pedersen and um, the, you know that that group from Southern Utah or from Utah, and mm-hmm. I would come up from San Diego, and mm-hmm. we were working at the VRG, and it was a perfect
0: it was a perfect crag for that grade. Okay, so it was the right place at the right time. So I rumors. Mm-hmm. So now, the way I heard it is that you bought some sort of fast car to get to and from San Diego to the VRG, and that you would, in fact, get up in the morning drive to the VRG, someone was there, I would assume, mm-hmm. warm up, do a burn on the project and go home. Is this true? That
1: happened maybe that – it happened like that maybe one or two times. Oh, okay. But here, here was the routine. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I would pack my car the night before. Right. And I would face it straight down our driveway. And, and I bought a house in northern San Diego County so that I could live basically 45 minutes closer to the VRG. Even though I had to go to work 45 minutes south in San Diego, I was 45 minutes closer to the VRG. So I would point the car downhill in the driveway, wake up at 4 a.m., and just walk straight down to my car and get in and drive. Okay. And I'd wake up you know, sooner or later. You didn't even want to
0: have to turn around. (laughs) No. You didn't want to have to do a Y turn out the driveway. Right. It was just
1: straight. In in our house, there was a turn on the driveway. It was one right-hand turn. And then it was one right-hand turn onto the freeway. Okay. And then when you got off the freeway to climb at VRG, you just roll off the freeway. There's no turn. So right. literally, there were two turns between me, my house, and the VRG. But it, there was 400 miles. All right. So I would, I would leave at 4. I'd get to the VRG at 10, 10.30 in the morning, usually mm-hmm. like 10.25. And my friend Jorge Visser from St. George, who lived 20 minutes away, right, would roll into the parking lot from his 20-minute drive at 10.25. And uh, there were so many times where I actually was rolling in from the south, and he was rolling in from the north, and we both stop our cars, get out, go climb. I climb that day, climb the next morning, and that after, the next daytime, and then head home the next evening. Okay. So it's usually a two day trip. Uh uh-huh. But there were some days where it was a one day trip, and other days where I went for one day and just bolted all day. Right. And, and went home. So to me, the driving was a small nuisance, and I was willing to drive whatever it took. Right. It, it, I, I look back on it today and it seems crazy. <laughs> I mean, I would just sit in the car for six hours each way and sure. think nothing of it. Right. You know, like someone would drive to the store mm-hmm. and get some milk.
0: Right. <laughs> so are you married at this point? Yes. Okay. So I had an
1: extremely, or have an extremely tolerant wife yeah. who, who was, who understood my passion mm-hmm. and knew that when we got together that by marrying me she wasn't going to change me. That's who I was. I was sure. this person that loved this. I, You know, I had a lot of a lot of passion for it. It was kind of an art form,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, climbing new routes. It's you're creating something and you're interpreting the rock in some unique way, and it's really a neat thing to do, as you well know. You've done that too, sure. So I, I had it in my blood, and and Karen was fully supportive of it.
0: Continues to be, uh huh. Of um, not just that, but your other passions now, which we'll get to <laughs> in a second. But so now you're driving. You're driving also by Clark Mountain the whole time, uh huh at some point you switch your focus over to there which is a crag that's um right on the border of California Nevada about 45 minutes south of Vegas another limestone cliff mm-hmm. uh, okay so here we go again i need a couple things verified switch out the sports car for an suv not to quite. drive up the road no not that's quite. another story okay uh huh <laughs>
1: But I'll first tell you how I found Clark. Okay, good. That's perfect. So limestone was new. Limestone looks like dirt from a distance. Sure. From from an untrained eye that's used to looking at granite. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was used to now, all of a sudden, there's this new kind of rock that looks interesting. And as you know, or as you said, I was driving past Clark all those times on the way to VRG. Uh, I was getting up at 4 in the morning. So by the time I hit Clark, that was like 8 a.m. And I'm looking at an east-facing dirt slope that at 8 a.m. has casting giant shadows. Sure. What does that mean? You know, it means there's caves, right? Yeah. Because that's the only thing that could cast a shadow, or not cast a shadow, but there would be a shadow in the middle of the... Of of the the, wall. Of the dirt wall. Or the dirt 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 wall. wall, yeah. And I quickly figured out that is limestone, and that is really steep limestone. So I started getting different ways to check it out, like commercial flights and private flights, and this is before Google Earth, and I figured out how to drive in there. So I drove in there with a regular truck, and at the time I didn't have a four wheel drive vehicle. So I didn't have an SUV. But every time I would pass a housewife in an SUV who never took it off road, I would just look at her with envy like, I can't believe you're driving this car and I do need one of those so badly. Right. <laughs> so I eventually got a car like that.
0: Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, rumor number two. Although that does kind of, that wasn't really a rumor, that kind of fit.
1: No, you know you've done your homework or something, you know too much about me.
0: Right after you sort of split Clark or we're kind of done with it. I started climbing there a bunch, okay, and uh, and we have enough mutual friends. So, but yeah, I think I was th- there, um, like, I say, kind of right after you were, you had sort of presented it to the world and said, "Here's your cliff, everybody. It's ready to go for you." Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I climbed there a bunch and I love it. So, now, did you, in fact, bring a group of day laborers there to help you build the trail? No. Oh, that one's not real. No, it's not. <laughs> Okay,
1: we have employed day laborers to remove like a lot of poison oak from the base of cliffs.
0: Okay, uh huh. All right, maybe that it got conflated. Uh huh. The the story I had was that you loaded up a truck full from Home Depot. <laughs> said we're going. <laughs> they probably thought you were deporting them. Show up and helped you build the, the parking and the trail into the first tier.
1: No, that's a great story though. I like that. And I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> I probably just made it up. Sometimes I get credit for some good stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's the thing. And, and one of the things that is impressive about your career is that the motivation goes beyond, at least at Clark. I mean, here's a place, when I just was jokingly, that you presented it to the world. It's like, here's a trail built. Here's not just the routes I wanted to do, but you put in You know what I sort of term the public service routes. You and, and, and your friends. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it probably was not just you. But once it kind of got on the radar, it was like ready to go, mm-hmm. with, you know, climbs all over it, well bolted anchors, trails in, here's where you go this way, fixed ropes, you know, the parking, here's how you get in there. And, uh, you know, it, it's like this huge gift to the climbing community as far as I'm concerned, but I think it sort of speaks to some of the things I've read that you've written about one and what you just said earlier about putting the bolt in the right place, like, of wanting to present roots that people are going to enjoy and that are going to, you know, there's going to be a legacy of people going there and, have, and having a good time or or being a great day at the Craigs. You know, can you speak to that at all?
1: Oh, definitely. The, some of the, what b- brings me pleasure in the sport is I'll see a young guy come up to me who's said, oh, I've done your root horse latitudes in the VRG, and that is so cool, and he starts telling me about the little things about the route, And I enjoy that. It's neat to do something that someone later enjoys. Mm-hmm. And someone else would have done the route, but they might have not put the little runouts I put in. You know, I, I think about where the bolts are and like the excitement of leading it and what, sure, how the route's going to fit together and, and what's what route are to the right and what routes are to the left and not to sandwich them too much. So, you know, there's a whole complex thing. So when you f- do have a final product and you do see guys enjoying it, guys and girls, it, it is satisfying. You know, sometimes I get credit for a lot of the climbing I do, but for every climb I did, there was someone helping me hump loads, fix ropes, belay, you know, let me hang on the project for hours at a time. Uh And and so there's been so many guys that have, you know, I've climbed with good friends, you know, you have these bonds that you develop with these people. And so anyway, that's just, I'm just really grateful for all those guys. Sometimes in the past, I would have first ascent, like I would think if you're the first person to climb it, then you did it. But now my feeling is if you are around and helping on the first ascent, I don't care if you're a five ten climber and it's five fourteen, you know, right. I'm gonna list all my buddies that went out there with me. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I learned in the climbing is it wasn't just about me, it was like all these other people that helped me and put up with all the you know, obsessive compulsive tendencies for me to wake up early in the morning, march out there, climb all day, come back late. I mean it's a lot it's almost like a job right in some ways. And then we had these guys that were just Happy to do it, just to hang out and have a good time. Yeah, clearly. So, clearly there
0: was a crew involved that coalesced around uh, the same motivations. Yeah. So what, at what point did you kind of transition, you know, where your climbing sort of started to take a backseat to your surfing? Is that kind of the transformation? Or am I missing something in there? Were you yeah, also you, like a backgammon champion or something?
1: You actually got the sort of the timing of the transformation is really uh, – You got it right on in a sense that, okay, I was willing to drive all this distance to do Mm -hmm. all this stuff. But then there was a point in my life where I was 35 years old and, you know, I was still climbing really strong. In fact, I was probably climbing almost as strong as I ever had, uh, barring an injury that I had. But um, I started realizing that with this injury and not being able to climb as hard as I used to and all this wear and tear on my body and psych from doing all this driving, that I needed a sport that I live near. Mm-hmm. and I lived near the ocean. So naturally, surfing came to me. I had uh, dabbled around with it a little in college. I owned a board and a wetsuit, but I had no freaking idea in college what I was doing as far as surfing. I didn't even know that there was a high tide and a low tide. Uh-huh. You know, I just knew that the, there was waves sometimes, and I'd go out and get thrashed. Uh-huh. So I really started surfing when I was 35. So, so I started realizing I needed a, a sport I lived near, mm-hmm. and surfing was natural, I had done a little bit of it. I knew enough about it that I knew what I had to buy, and I I got started surfing. And because I was a well-known climber, there were a number of surfers who were also climbers who would kind of help me out, like, oh, this is my chance to surf with Randy Levitt because you know I was well-known in that other discipline. They thought, well, they'd maybe like to see what I could do surfing, or they just want to help me out because they they knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And so that's some of the... Some of the nice things that happened in that, I was helped out quite a bit. Instead of just starting from scratch and being some kook at a surf spot, I was at least some kook at a surf spot that had some friends that were going to watch my back. Sure. So I had a friend named Chris Hubbard who took me out to Toto Santos. It's a big wave spot. I had a friend named Jeff Pfeffer who took me to Hawaii to some of the big wave spots. And like climbing, when I started surfing, I suddenly had this idea in my mind what I wanted to do at surfing. Which was surf big waves. I mean, what could be cooler in my mind? Mm -hmm. So, quickly within a couple of years, I was surfing out at Toto Santos on, you know, reasonably sized, medium sized days. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just grew into the fact that I was 35 when I started, so I'm never going to be very good at sort of acrobatic, you know, shortboard surfing. And so I really just loved the big wave surfing. And then as soon as the jet skis and the towing surfing came around, to me that was the next step. It's like as soon as I heard about guys doing that, I thought this is exactly what I want to do. So I was calling all my surf buddies, finding out who wants to buy a jet ski, who wants to learn how to do this. And there weren't any instruction manuals. There was just uh, Larry Hamilton and right. Derek Dorner and those his crew doing it and a few other people.
0: So were these guys that you were calling actually picking up the phone or were they like, oh God, it's Levitt? I, it's,
1: it was weird. Don't touch I, that. <laughs> you know what that means? That means getting up at 4 a.m. and driving to Mexico every day. Right. Um, I, I found a guy named Ross Garrett who had a, a broken ski. And he said, okay, I'll tell you what. You pay for the repairs and then our ski is 50-50. We're partners. And so he had some idea what he was doing and we went out and practiced. Mm-hmm. And so that was my start. It was kind of a hard club to break into because the club was almost non-existent. Sure, and the the guys that were good at it and doing it, they don't want to. They don't want a rookie, you know. And if they don't need a partner, they're not going to train you. Mm-hmm. Because if you're driving a jet ski and pulling them into waves, you can actually do way more harm. I mean, the driver has really the whole, all the hard work to do to get the, the surfer in the right spot. And so it took me a number of years to get good at it. And I had some guys that took me and were hard on me, you know, just like thrash me. My ego, I seemed like I was about two inches tall at the end of some of these days where right. I felt like I can't do anything right. These guys are yelling at me. And you're yelling because there's the noise of the wave runner. Sure. So it was really an interesting time to be back in a complete beginner seat. But knowing you know what I wanted to accomplish. or It wasn't really accomplished. It was just I liked doing
0: it. Right. I wanted to get good at it. Right. So yeah. you seem like the kind of guy that would just say, okay, I'm, I'm not climbing, I'm surfing. Was that the case? Were you pretty much in this era just... Not climbing at all, or were you attempting to sort of keep a fitness that that side of things as well?
1: No, i I, I kept climbing, okay, and, but the problem is that you get kind of uh, I call it the soft Hawaiian belly. okay, because you know you can't help but put some fat on. and then from paddle surfing, you know you're lying in the water paddling on your board, and your chest builds up. and so your body actually changes. So I put on like ten pounds above mm-hmm. my climbing fitness weight. So I slowly watch my climbing, you know I'm getting older. I'm not as strong. Um, but I'm getting better at something else. And I'm you know, enthusiastic about something else. But I still loved climbing. I was still putting up 513 trad routes, 513 plus, some um, 514. Oh, yeah. You were but, really out of shape, huh? But, <laughs> Must have been horrible for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you're talking
1: about a guy who used to obsess. I used to obsess about every pound and every calorie I right. ate. Right. And so now suddenly I'm in a completely different mode. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I can't climb 514, uh, you know, continuous fingertip type stuff, but maybe I can do a five fourteen stemming corner. So yeah, did you, I was about
0: to ask you. So you were fully in this surfing kind of era when you put up. Is it Book of Hate?
1: Book of Hate and yeah. and Dihedron and, and, yeah,
0: and Joshua Run. Tree sure. both really hard stemming. And those corners. came; those were put up during while well, this surfing was going on pretty right. heavily. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I feel really bad for you about that that <laughs> belly you put on. <laughs> um, so are you still surfing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Are you still big wave surfing? Yes. All right. Uh, I love it. I had no idea that you were to- doing toe in.
1: There is, when we've had a good day of toe in surfing, there is really nothing that I've ever done, whether it was base jumping that I used to do, or kite surfing, which I do now, or the best rock climb I've ever done, the happiest I've ever been rock climbing. When you get the best day of toe in surfing, and it's just spectacular. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just think about it. I can still think about some of those few days I've had mm-hmm. like they were yesterday. And so what we used to joke, uh, my friends who climbed and surf, is when you redpoint a hard route, you know, you clip the chains and you're usually happy at least until you lower back down to the ground. But then as soon as you're down on the ground, you're thinking about your next
0: yeah. project. If right? you even get to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times it's when the beaner snaps on the chains. You're just like, <laughs> right. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like take. And yeah. So so yeah. when
1: I, when I redpointed Planet Earth, which was my first 514, I think, I was happy for a week. Right. I mean, that's unheard of, right? To do sure. a rock climb and be happy for a, re- a week, but with the surfing, I could—I mean, the the buzz of a good day. But the good days were so hard to find. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the carrot and stick, where you're always you're always searching for that day.
0: Are you scared of it at all?
1: Um, I'm more scared of it now than I was early on. Early on, I would—I wasn't very scared of big wave surfing, but I had a near death experience at Toto's, so it woke me up to the fact that it's—you know—it can be scary. And the, and the water moves. It's really hard to be in the position of being in the right position to paddle surf into mm-hmm. a wave um, and catch it. Uh, however, the toe-in surfing is a lot less scary because uh, for a number of reasons. Well, that seems counterintuitive. Well, think of it this way. When you're paddle and surfing in a big wave, you're out of breath. Right. You're moving really slowly. You're on a huge board trying to make a critical drop. Well, when you're in toe-surfing, you can relax before... it before you let go of the rope uh-huh. and you're watching exactly where you want to be on the face and you're not out of breath and you're not uh, trying to make this really hard drop, you're already on your, you know, you're already planing speed on your board. And so it's easy. So the, the hardest parts of catching the wave and a big wave surfing don't aren't there. It's uh-huh. everything else that you're doing. And then once you fall off the board if you have a leash on in big wave surfing and a big board, it tombstones behind you, so it basically actually acts as a sea anchor. Okay. Whereas tow in surfing, you might have a vest that you float to the surface faster, and you have a five foot nine inch board that doesn't drag nearly as much. And okay. The whole experience is easier. And you have a jet ski that might pick you up. Oh, I'm going straight to tow in then. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just skip the other one. <laughs>
0: Sounds good to me.
1: Now, I call it sports surfing. Right on. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. guess.
0: Yeah, right. That's, like I said, to an onlooker. To someone watching the movies, it seems really counterintuitive. So
1: It's not as scary as paddle surfing. Okay. But it's more fun.
0: Right. In my, You know, for me, right. everyone
1: has a different thing that sure. they get out of surfing.
0: Sure. So you just dropped a little thing. I want to hit it, and then we'll, we'll kind of maybe move to a couple of last questions. But you did just mention the whole base jumping thing, which we just skipped over. Another sort of – it's not really a rumor, but were you pretty much the first guy to jump off El Cap? I was the first guy to climb El Cap and jump off the
1: face and then jump off.
0: Okay. And
1: uh, the story behind that was in 1978, Dale Bard and I did the Pacific Ocean Wall. Mm -hmm. And Dale Bard was this Yosemite veteran, and I was the rookie guy. But uh, I remember I got off uh, soloing Electric Ladyland on Washington Column, and I met Dale in the parking lot that afternoon. And he said, oh, yeah, I heard you did Electric Ladyland. I said, yeah, it was really, really good. And he said, oh, do you want to do the P.O. Wall? And here I am, like 17 or 18 years old, and he's asking me to do like the second or first hardest route on El Cap. I think the Sea of Dreams had just been done. So this was like the second hardest route with a legendary Yosemite climber. So there was no way that I was going to say no to that. So I said, okay. And he goes, okay, meet me here tomorrow uh, in the parking lot. And I'm like, tomorrow? I'm so tired from my other climb. He said, um, don't worry, I'll take care of the food. So all right, the next day, I show up in the parking lot, and I'm, how much do I owe you for food, Dale? He said, five bucks. So <laughs> you can imagine we had not a whole lot of food. Right. We did the PO really fast, I think four and a quarter days. But the end of the story is we get to the top, we pack up all our stuff, and Dale has us use the hammocks as like parachutes on our haul bags. Uh-huh. And this is before Yosemite, you know, you weren't allowed to do that or sure. it wasn't a good idea because there really wasn't anyone around. We threw our haul bags off, as per Dale's suggestion, off the top of the dom wall, right, where they where they jump. And I remember seeing the haul bags go and the parachute slowing them down, uh, you know, uh, slower than free fall speed. And that just, I just saw that image in my mind. Okay. And then a little bit later in camp, I was talking to some people and they said something about, seeing some guys in these red and yellow jumpsuits in free fall. And all of a sudden, a light bulb went off in my head like, that is it. I want to climb up there and then jump off. So I had to learn base jumping before I did that. Uh-huh. But, but to me, I, uh, the whole thing about what I've done in my life is I like to have some idea of where you're going. Like For, for example, I wouldn't do bungee jumping because you don't go from point A to point B. Uh-huh. There's no sort of purpose for me.
0: Right, a progression. It's something you work towards.
1: Yeah, something you perfect, mm-hmm. or some, or something that takes you logically from one place to another. So the idea of climbing El Cap and jumping off to me just made perfect sense. Ah, uh-huh. that's that was a just a you know an idea that had a completeness to it. So that's what I I started learning
0: how to do that. How many more years was it till that happened? Two years. Two years. Yeah. So you were what nineteen or something? I was twenty. You were twenty.
1: Twenty or twenty-one? I think okay. I was twenty.
0: Okay. Yeah, twenty. All right. I climbed Excalibur
1: with Mike Klinsky, and uh, Yabo, John Lubonsky, carried my parachute up the back, and uh-huh. I strapped it on and jumped off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it probably that probably wasn't illegal at that point either. <laughs> it was. Oh, it was. It's too bad, because Yosemite
1: is the perfect venue for sure. base jumping. Sure, sure. I mean, it's just a shame, because it's just perfect there.
0: Right. You know? Well, maybe someday they'll come around. Maybe. I doubt it. So, anyway, let, let's, uh, let's wrap this up, Randy. Um, clearly, climbing really hard was always very important to you. And when you're talking about getting a little bit older and sort of not, quote unquote, being able to climb as hard as you had, you know, that maybe had played a part in you sort of losing at least some interest in it and moving to some other things. So now you are 50. 51. 51, okay. And obviously, still connected to climbing, you're here with Maxim. Ropes and at the trade show, and just were in Maple Canyon, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know where where is it now? Where do you see it going? And uh, you know, sort of, what's your legacy left with uh, with the climbing world?
1: Well, what I started doing after all the hard sport climbing and surfing is that I lost my patience for projecting routes, so okay. I just started on siting. Mm-hmm. So that's all I do now. I really don't want to project anything. If uh, I used to be able to on-site like five thirteen now, I'm probably more like 5'12", because I just don't train as much, and I'm 20 pounds heavier than I was when I was really fit. Uh-huh. Not because I'm fat, but because I've got the Hawaiian belly, right. and uh, kite surfing and all that stuff, it just builds different muscles, and it just isn't important to me to be as light as possible, so my climbing is more like on-site climbing, and just having a nice time being with friends, and I used to think that I would never climb unless I got kept getting better, Right. but that's been proven wrong, so I still love climbing. I love to see the new young guys and girls climb and what they can do and for everything to progress. So as they do my roots in record time and on site and whatever, all that is good for me. Mm -hmm. I I just think it's really neat to see it all progress like that. So I'm enjoying watching the sport grow, watching people have fun, um, and seeing my friends at the trade show.
0: Awesome. Are you still doing root development?
1: yes yeah we have a lot of new routes in san diego i did not very many routes this last season but probably eight really super high quality 512 type routes and you know they're the kind of four or five star 512s and they're awesome so i still get that joy and the experience out of doing a route you know finding a name for it mm-hmm. you know the whole thing right on putting the bolts
0: in the right place if it's bolts or if it's just gear whatever cool listen randy um I really appreciate you sitting down with me. Not only has it been a great interview, but it's also, you know, been really great for me. Like you were saying, some of these all arounders that, that were before you, the stone masters and those guys. And although we never climbed together, you were definitely an inspiration to me when I met you back there. That's why I was intimidated. And your sort of trajectory of being that all around climber inspired me to try to do the same thing. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming in into my little hotel room and having a chat. Well,
1: you're welcome. And, uh, To your credit, um, I remember my first impression of you, other than meeting you with uh, uh, when we were doing the scorched earth topo stuff, mm-hmm. was I saw a thing on the internet called the rant, and uh, <laughs> if you if you're on YouTube, go check it out. I'm sure it's still around. You were pontificating about this sham of aid climbing, <laughs> and I just one thing I love is actually being able to laugh at ourselves. Right. So, you know, I can all I can look at myself and laugh. And some of the things you said about egg climbing were so true <laughs> that, that I just loved it. And, and even though I considered myself a good egg climber and that was kind of a lot of my climbing career and I have that kind of invested in there, I just love what you had to say. Right on. So, so thanks for that, that, that. Every time I can laugh, I'm, I'm pretty happy. So thanks. Thanks a lot, <laughs> right, Randy.
0: Okay. There you go, folks. Randy Levitt in his own words. And if there's one thing we can learn from that interview, it's don't waste so much goddamn time. And as usual, thanks for listening, everybody. Check out anormalcast.com for ways to help out. Click in the Help Out tab. It's a bunch of different things you can do. Um, I also want to point out that you can email me at chris at We can talk about whatever you'd like to talk about gotten a lot of good ideas for shows off of there a lot of help kind of making this thing a little bit better so keep those mild criticisms coming let's not get too hardcore on there also check out the Facebook page that's the easiest way to know when new shows are up and other things that are going on and subscribe and leave a review on iTunes that helps me out and finally I don't think I've ever mentioned that I'm on Twitter at a normal cast and uh, I also usually update put the updates when the shows come out on there so that's one way to find out what's going on as well so keep listening tell your friends send me some uh addresses i'll send you stickers we'll keep this thing rolling see you next time on the normal cast check you're not I can eat 50 eggs. Nobody can eat 50 eggs. You just
1: said he could eat anything. You ever eat 50 eggs? Nobody ever eat 50 eggs.